Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gura and Tom Keen at Oppenheimer Fund Studios. Uh, in New York, a spectacular rebound. You know, David, I have no life, as you know. I never get south of 58th Street. <laughs> what a rebuild in downtown yeah, New York. Yeah, I have friends who live uh, near here in Battery Park City and just uh, extraordinary yeah. places and places to eat now, places to shop, as you a- mentioned. Every the place down here, there's all signs out front on the street saying avocado toast. There you go. It's like the land I of avocado toast. I may be having toast. some right now. Though that would be. We are here again <laughs> at Oppenheimer Funds Studios, and we're thrilled to get started uh, on this important jobs day with Carl Weinberg of High Frequency Economics. Carl, I Francine Lacroix in Rome, and as you know, there is a more than important Italian uh, vote. I would suggest the zeitgeist for Global Wall Street this Friday morning is what they do, not what they say. And what Italians are doing, it implies, is moving money out of the country. Is Italy too much like Greece? <laughs> Italy is different from Greece. Uh, but it is, uh, in, that, in the same sense of being different, it's also a much bigger concern because its total debt burden is much uh, bigger. The bonds are much more widely held, so it has a bigger impact on the investment community. And, of course, its economy is the uh, third or fourth largest in Europe, depending on how you want to count it. So that if there were disorder in Italy's financial system and economy, it would have a much bigger bang to the buck. But, you know, Greece had fundamental problems. You know, Greece is overborrowed. Italy's, Italy's probably overborrowed as well, but Italy's problem is much more of a political and financial nature right now. A political and financial na- nature will get some, some of that sorted out this weekend, presumably, when that referendum takes place uh, on Sunday, Carl. Uh, if it is a no, where do we go from here? When you talk about those structural problems, when you talk about the banking sector uh, being in the condition it's in, say no matter, no matter what the outcome is here, what happens next? Yeah, well, no matter what the outcomes are of the election, whatever the outcome is, Italian banks have to raise capital. They're undercapitalized. They're in trouble. The ECB, the Bank of Italy, everybody is on them to raise capital. Um, We're looking at the possibility of state intervention uh, to support some of the banks, uh, pushing the limits of European constitutional uh, uh, powers to their absolute maximum. And, of course, if we get a no vote... If the president, I'm sorry, if the prime minister resigns, we get elections, we get the risk of an anti-European five-star government coming in uh, to replace Mr. Renzi, then it becomes almost impossible for banks to raise capital. I mean, they're a dodgy proposition to begin with, and that then takes the banking sector crisis to a new level where an ineffective government can't perhaps help them as much as we'd like them to and where private sector money is unlikely to come in, and then we have a problem. Mario Monti on uh, surveillance earlier this morning saying he assumes that uh, Prime Minister Renzi will stay on the job no matter what, no matter what happens. How much time does he have here to turn things around? Um, so, till, sun, uh, till Sunday. <laughs> 
You know, it's <laughs> no, a very, very less. short leash. There's just a limit yeah. to, to what can be done. The banking sector is not going to get fixed between now and Monday morning. Um, if uh, he, the uh, referendum is defeated, then Renzi has to decide what to do. He said in the past he would resign. He certainly put his entire political credibility on supporting this referendum. So uh, just like mm-hmm. uh, David Cameron, he would have to step away. But then he just came out a few right. days ago and said he wasn't going to go. So, you know, who knows? I, I don't know what he will do or what he won't do, but there is very much a risk that his government may be forced to resign. He might not have a choice. And then, of course, in elections, anything can happen, and it looks as though Five Star would take control of the government if there were right. an election tomorrow. If I assume zero-sum political economics, Dr. Weinberg, if, uh, if, if Mario Draghi is supporting Italy, if the ECB is assisting Italy, who loses? Who is the one within Europe not benefiting? Is the ECB benefits Italy? Well, I don't think the bank of uh, I don't think the European Central Bank is at risk here because there's a limit to what they can do to support Italian banks. They can keep them liquid, but they can't make them solvent. What's on the line here, I think, is the question of bail-in of failed institutions, which will be tested. This has become the Eurogroup solution to problems in Europe, that taxpayer money should go last and private money should be taken away first in the case of a bank insolvency. And in the case of Italy, the systemic importance of the institutions is mandating that the government come in and ask the European community, European Commission, for permission to pump money into Italian banks, which otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to do. So if the Italians can do it, then why can't everybody else do it? And then what does bail-in really mean? So we've got a real test of a conflict between national interests and European interests. And, of course, that raises five stars uh, role in all of this. Yeah, beautifully framed. Uh, Dr. Weinberg, thank you for the uh, briefing this morning. Carl Weinberg, with great assistance to us over the years and through the crisis on international economics. And now joining us from Janus Capital, William Gross. Bill Gross, wonderful to speak to you again. Welcome to Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio uh, Worldwide. Bill Gross, it's certainly better with a 4.6% unemployment rate, but it's not all clear for the American labor economy, is it? No, I don't think so. I mean, 4.6 is a headline-grabbing number. It's getting close to the lowest numbers that we uh, saw in the early part of the century before Lehman, I, I suppose. So that will be the... The headline, but uh, you know we're certainly not out of the clear. When I saw the minus 0.1 wage number and the revision or the uh, YOY coming down from 2.8 to 2.5, to me it indicated that things are just not as hunky dory as the stock market seems to think it is. Bill, I want to fold in here the politics of the moment. You have been critical of some of the statements of the president-elect. There is an assumption within Trump reflation of higher inflation and a better good for all. Can you state that, or is there a risk here of bad inflation with no real growth? Well, there is that. And, and uh, you know, inflation and productivity go together in terms of nominal GDP. And I have a sense that uh, nominal GDP will be elevated by many of the programs, whether it's uh, corporate tax cuts or infrastructure programs, et cetera. But future growth is primarily a function of productivity, as is uh, in inflation. Um, if productivity is high, then inflation is contained. But uh, productivity has been flatlined for the last several years. And while you know, Keynesian uh, 
programs, and that's, remember, that's remarkable for Republicans. It's like a 180-degree turn. Uh, but while Keynesian stimulus in the form of tax cuts and spending and deregulation promise a, a near-term boost for productivity in 2017 and 18, they're likely to be temporary in my view. Uh, you know, the counters to this view is, is that there's a strong dollar now and uh, continuing structural headwinds, including aging demographics, uh, deglobalization trade policies and accelerating debt and uh, leverage that we've seen in almost all countries. And uh, that promises to contain productivity at perhaps 1% annual growth rates and therefore, to me, uh, GDP growth rate at two, and uh, perhaps inflation higher than that at two and a half to three. So uh, nominal at five, some of it, or majority of it, may be being inflation. Bill, how much of the uh, uncertainty was allayed this week when Donald Trump picked Stephen Mnuchin to be his, uh, his Treasury Secretary? Uh, I heard Stephen Mnuchin say, as I'm sure you did here, that he would be willing to explore uh, selling bonds uh, with, with durations longer than, than 30 years. I wonder what you made of that. I wonder what you make of, uh, of what this has done to uncertainty. Well, I think that's the uh, one of the, let's put it this way, not to be totally critical, that's one of the uh, important ideas that uh, make a lot of sense. Of course, it made sense 50 basis points ago in, in terms of lower rates, but it still makes sense today in terms of selling 50 to 100-year bonds, uh, the theory being that you match the maturity of the bonds to the length of the uh, asset that you're um, using the liability against. And, of course, the length of the asset is the the strength and the longevity of the U.S. economy, which hopefully is a 50 to 100 year type of thing. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't think it makes sense in terms of his policies of cutting corporate taxes from 35 to 15 yeah. percent. I mean, the effective corporate tax rate already is 24 percent, and I see this as a grab bag of special interests, uh, cutting corporate tax rates, raising corporate profits, and doing nothing really for Main Street America. Right. Bill, let's cut to the heart of the chase. You've written on this for Janice uh, any number of times. The basic idea of it's a better job economy, labor participation is a little bit off the mark this month, folks, back to where it was in June. We need incentives from Washington. Does that come from a good old 1960s tax credit? Or can we really trust the secretary-designate and the president-elect to affect a broader tax policy? No, I, I, to me, Tom, uh, tax credits, while they've uh, been effectively used uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, yeah. you know, these days they don't make as much sense. They don't have the multiplier effect that they used to have. And the reason is is that you know corporations have a ample use of, of money. They've been able to borrow at near 0% interest rates now for several years. And if they were going to invest or wanted to invest in a thriving economy, then certainly they would have by now. So a, a tax credit, you know, will do little, uh, to my way of thinking, to, to generate economic growth far and above what we're seeing now, which is really a 2% or 1.5% yeah. type of uh, growth rate. I, I think the government has to get more involved, has to be more Keynesian, has to be more... Um, uh, jobs oriented uh, themselves as opposed to the private sector. Yeah, David, I just want to mention we have minimal market reaction to this jobs report. Yields are in ever so slightly. Bill, not, let me, not enough to make Bill Gross's there. <laughs> Bill, let me ask you about uh, the, the international space here, one I know you watch uh, so closely. Uh, if we take this incoming administration at its word that it's going to label China as a currency manipulator, uh, I know you've reckoned with what the consequences of that might be. We could see a China that stops buying bonds, one that perhaps dumps bonds. 
What globally would the effect of that be, and how likely is that to happen, do you think? Well, I think it has had an effect. I mean, China has been liquidating bonds for uh, almost 12 to 16 months now, and so undoubtedly that's type of had an effect. And uh, yes, um, you know, global conditions are important conditions in terms of U.S. interest rates. Let's uh, go to the other uh, other side of the South China Sea to Japan, and recognize that they still pin their 10-year JGB at zero uh, percent now. What does that mean? It, it means that uh, Japanese investors can sell JGBs. They haven't got many of them left, but they can sell them, you know, basically and buy treasuries for a currency-adjusted uh, 60 or 70 basis point pickup. And so what Japan does, what the ECB does, does next week in terms of their policies, right. um, you know, are, are quite critical in terms of the overall global bond market and the effect that they have on U.S. treasuries. Bill, 30 seconds here. I want to come back on Italy and the drama of this weekend. But right now, do you just assume stronger dollar and could you go with Mr. Trichet that we may get a brutally strong dollar? Not a brutally strong dollar. I mean, it, it's up uh, depending upon when you start, uh, 6 or 7% against the majors and obviously much more against uh, emerging market countries. And it's there where the brutal, I, I think, uh, comes into effect, Tom, because emerging market countries have taken out uh, $3 to $4 trillion worth of uh, dollar-denominated debt over the past five, six, seven years. And now those liabilities denominated right. in dollars are coming to roost. Not only that, but higher interest rates uh, b by the Fed, which are, are coming, sure. you know, basically uh, allows that uh, or mandates that they'll pay higher interest rates, well, and they uh, are in much of a pickle, put it that look, way. Bill Gross, I want to turn to Italy and the moment for the Italian people and, frankly, for Europe. You've been a great student of European political economics. Mario Draghi has to react to what we will see on Sunday. How would you expect the ECB would react to a no vote from the Italian people? Well, the, the prospects suggest, Tom, that uh, Draghi will buy Italian bonds to support the uh, Italian yeah. credit. And I, I, think, I think that's reasonable. You know, perhaps a lot of that is already built in in terms of the, the spread. Italy's been doing a little bit better in the last few days because of the expectation that, um, you know, hands would be open in, in terms of buying by Draghi and the, and the ECB. So, you know, they've been on a whatever-it-takes type of policy, and yeah. I would expect in terms of that referendum, that whatever it takes will work for the short term, but it may not work for the long term because ultimately exactly. Italy is uh, uh, approaching a basket case in, in terms of uh, its banks and potential okay. bankruptcy. But, Bill, you've been doing this for years. The singular distinction right now is Italy can't go to the lira. They cannot depreciate or devalue themselves out of this disaster. What is the gross solution, the Bill Gross solution, for all of Italy and, frankly, for the European experiment if currency depreciation is not available? Well, the, the, the point is, is that there, there's very little in terms of a solution because the experiment, the euro experiment, which tied them all together, and unfortunately, Tom, in my view, you know, tied the lira to the mark at, at a most unfortunate rate, which made Germany more competitive than Italy, 
you know, to the extent that they're stuck in that uh, euro currency, then there's very little they can do other than the standard relatives, which are uh, structural change, et cetera, et cetera. But Italy is not good at structural change. They like things like they are, and that's why they've been uh, behind the eight ball for so many years and so many decades. And so, um, you know, I, I simply think that, uh, you know, the way things go in that type of situation is that ultimately, uh, you know, bankruptcies leak out, whether it's in the financial institutions or in terms of a low, low growth rate for Italy itself relative to its neighboring countries. Um, not much to do there other than to break out of jail or to stay in jail and suck up bread and water. <laughs> Thinking about what we're, we're seeing in Italy, what we've seen here in the, the U.S., you've written, Bill, that the, the populist sunrise has barely uh, broken. What does the zenith look like? If, if this is what we're seeing now, what does, uh, what does populism bring to the U.S. economy, the European economy, and the global economy? Well, to my view, that's, that's down the road, is it not? I mean, we have four years of uh, Trump policies, and to my way of thinking, as they're unfolding, they're certainly not populist-oriented. Uh, you know, they may be populist-oriented in terms of trade policies, uh, which I think got him elected in the Midwest, but uh, to the extent that trade policies are anti-growth, then they may not necessarily be job productive. So, you know, I think the populist movement is a global movement. It's a dissatisfaction with uh, corporations relative to labor. It's an expression of uh, the need for higher wages or jobs period. Um, you know, will that go away? Uh, to my way of thinking, no, it won't go away because the situation will get worse over the next four years. And so ultimately, how is it resolved? Right. Um, you know, it, it, it's resolved with populist policies or at the fringe, uh, you know, unrest that uh, that continues to express dissatisfaction. And it's resolved right. by continuing to vote down current administrations in terms of their existing policies, right. whatever they are. Bill, to speak to our viewers and listeners worldwide on your adamant statement that financial repression will continue for many years, including even a decade, can you reaffirm after the election of Donald Trump that we will continue to see financial repression? Well, that is a question mark. Uh, you know, Trump has been anti-Fed, but not necessarily um, has he expressed his specific views in terms of what he thinks the Fed should do. Now, we know the Fed's independent and won't listen to Trump, but uh, aside from that, he's got the ability to appoint uh, three, four, or five members, and that should greatly influence Fed policy. To my way of thinking, mm -hmm. you know, tr uh, Trump's view on the Fed will be a very easy monetary policy to accommodate his very strong uh, fiscal deficit uh, type of spending. And so, um, you know, that's financial repression, is it not? It's, it's, it's a uh, implementation right. of an interest rate that's far below what has been right. uh, earned over uh, prior decades. I want to move up to Stanford then, Bill Gross, by your beloved San Francisco 49ers. We won't talk about the 49ers. We'll stick with Stanford. Ken Rogoff of Harvard University suggests that John Taylor of Stanford University would be an appropriate Fed chairman given the politics of the moment. Can you live with the Taylor rule and Taylor economics at the Fed? Well, no, I can't, and I, I admire Ken Rogoff for his uh, historical research, but not necessarily John Taylor. You know, the, the Taylor rule was uh, implemented in the mid-1990s. It made lots of sense back then when the economy was less leveraged and you uh, inputted 
unemployment and you inputted the uh, potential real interest rate and you came up with some magic formula as to where it should be. I, I, I think, you know, the Taylor rule reflects what's been wrong with the Federal Reserve for many, many years is that it's model driven and the models are based upon 20 or 30 years or 40 years of history as opposed to the current day in which there are high debt levels, which is the primary factor. There are aging demographics. There are technology advancements which displace people. And so unemployment rates and uh, real interest rates that used to be, the 2% real interest rate of the Taylor Rule, you know, are no longer exist. And so the minute you start to use it, um, that's when you start to lose it. Bill, whether or not we get a John Taylor in a position at the Fed, it sounds like his legacy is going to loom large in Washington. If you listen to the conversation on Capitol Hill, Republican lawmakers saying they want a rules-based system at the Fed Reserve. They control both houses of Congress, or they will control the White House uh, as well. What is the, the Fed going to look like from that perspective and from a personnel perspective here in 2017 and beyond? Well, it depends on the, the rules, uh, does it not? And, and I've dissed the, uh, the Taylor rule as, as one of the rules or the Phillips curve as another one of the rules. But they, they need to come up with a, a neutral uh, star uh, type of rule which um, zeroes in on the uh, neutral real interest rate, which at the moment the Fed seems to think is somewhere around zero. I don't dispute that. Well, what I see next week in terms of an evolving policy is, is a Fed that probably won't lower those dots anymore. And, and at the moment, the market is expecting, you know, a Fed funds increase over the next 12 months of perhaps 40 basis points and then another 40 basis points. But believe me, the dots in 2018 and 2019 are expecting more like something like 80 or 100 you know, basis points of increase. So I would think that at the next meeting, if the dots don't come down, and they probably won't come down because of the tremendous influence of the stock market and fiscal spending and, you know, the potential inflation ahead as opposed to behind, then, uh, you know, the front part of the curve, the twos, threes, fours, and fives, you know, could be significantly affected. So that'd be the thing I'd watch with the Fed near term. Bill, is it your sense here that uh, the markets have priced in some sort of infrastructure package, uh, some sort of tax cuts, tax reform at this point? We saw the excitement over the prospect of that on the heels of, of the election. Is it priced in at this point? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so, uh, to the extent that the stock market has gone up by 5 6 or 7% on the basis of it. Um, you know, I, I think you would have to say that it, uh, it certainly has begun to be, and it is almost culminating in, in terms of the pricing in of a, of a uh, fiscal package of, of you know, an, an, an amount that uh, is still unknown, but which will certainly be significant. My problem with that, of course, is that uh, the fiscal package, you know, to my way of thinking, may be uh, oriented towards tax incentive programs from the private sector and not from the, the uh, government sector. We talked about that five minutes ago, mm. and to the extent that it is, Perhaps it won't be as effective as the market is beginning to anticipate. The other thing, of course, is the lowering of corporate tax cuts. Uh, we're going to see the grab bag there, and corporations probably will benefit. So markets have, right. I think, correctly anticipated a, a grab bag of, uh, of goodies over the next 6 to 12 months. Bill, thank you so much. Bill Gross is with Janus Capital. It's Jobsdale. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors 
who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Again, we are at Oppenheimer Fund Studios, and we save the best for last here. Wandering through the door, Brian Levitt, senior investment strategist, and he dragged along Ira Jersey, of course, who's given us such great assistance, particularly on our Fed Day over the years on interest rates. Brian, it's a bond route. I made a joke of it three weeks ago. It's not a joke anymore. Price down, yields up. How painful is it for Oppenheimer funds? Well, it's not necessarily painful from Oppenheimer funds. I mean, if you think about, there's obviously a lot of ways to generate income in these markets and still attractive ways to generate income in these markets. What investors should realize, though, is that the 10-year Treasury rate has actually not gone up significantly this year. It started the year at 225. Today, it's around 240. So we believe that earlier in the year, the Fed raised interest rates too early, signaled four rate hikes, flattened the yield curve, Brexit happened. And now the market's starting to price yeah. in some optimism, some inflation expectations, and I mean, rates I, have backed I know up. you two are don't, you're not even on speaking terms. I mean, we understand Separate that. Separate sides here. of the table but here Ira, with us between. Help me here. Steve Major at HSBC is saying, okay, I had low rates. For a while here, I'm going to get Trump high rates. And then Steve says we're going to see some form of glide path over quarters and years back to the lower terminal rates, which everybody's song and dance has been for X number of years. Which is it, a new permanent yield, or do we migrate back to what we knew pre-November 8th? Well, I think ultimately we wind up with a, a cyclical uptick in yields, which stays here for you know two, three years perhaps, and then um, you can potentially have yields go down again. You know, the, the key pivot here for me as, uh, you know, looking at the Treasury market will be what does the five-year Treasury do? So I, I've been looking a lot at the five-year Treasury and how it's performed against twos and tens and how it's performed uh, on a forward basis. And what you see is we're back to where what we were pricing in 2014. It wasn't that long ago that we were here. This, it's just, you know, we got used to the idea that maybe we're going to remain under 2% yields forever because you have zero yields in Japan. You have zero yields and negative yields in Germany. And so everyone thought that that was a permanent fixture. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's not a permanent fixture because... You know, yes, we are do have global markets and we live in a global world, but the U.S. impacts uh, its own treasury yields, obviously, right? So between inflation and growth and growth expectations changing, it just it makes a lot of sense. So bearing that relativism in mind, do you use the word route to describe what we're seeing here? It, it, it's not a route. I mean, I, I know, you know, I, 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 not to criticize Bloomberg, but there was a headline yesterday on the terminal saying it was $1.7 trillion of value was destroyed. Well, you know, unless Watch any... Watch yourself. Unless any <laughs> bonds, unless any bonds actually defaulted in that uh-huh. time period, and I'm pretty sure the U.S. Treasury didn't. Um, then, you know, the par value, the, the amount of bonds outstanding remain the same. It's the price that moved. And the, that relative price movement is painful for investors who might have gotten in at the top. But it's, it also just suggests that, um, you know, we, we're actually going to be more optimistic. So, you know, you want to be in things like corporate bonds and, and equities in an environment where you're going to have better growth. Brian Levitt, help us understand here how Janet Yellen et al. are going to be processing what we're seeing here today. You look at Fed futures, it's all but a given here. We're going to see a rate hike in, in 
in December. Tom's been keen here to look ahead to, to, to February. You think that's the meeting to look forward uh, to. What do you see as the path? What are you expecting to hear from Chair Yellen with regard to forward guidance in a couple weeks? Well, I expect that they are going to raise interest yeah. rates in December, but I think that they, if you look at today's earnings number, you look at the labor force participation rate, this is still not a, an excessively inflationary environment. I mean, for years, people have asked us, is this all inflationary? We've always responded, we hope so, <laughs> right? Because deflation is the worst of all outcomes. So we continue to climb out of uh, the, the financial crisis. We continue, we're seeing wages pick up. This is a good thing. But to raise interest rates aggressively in this environment, a la what Stanley Fisher seemed to signal at the beginning of, of the year, right. um, would, be, would be problematic. Critical question. If we go from Vice Chairman Fisher's ultra-accommodative out to something that Ira Jersey would call normal, I believe we're going to see yield up, price down. And you know in a bond bear market, the way it goes is people look at their bond statements one month, oh, that's harsh. (laughs) Two months, that's really harsh. Mm -hmm. And there's some point where they move funds. Are we going to see bond outflows And do you just presume they go into an equity alternative? Well, we certainly hope so. I mean, if you look since the financial crisis, $700 billion out of equity funds and equity ETFs, a trillion dollars into bond funds and bond ETFs. And, you know, General Patton told us if everyone's thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking. We interviewed him, what, last week? Yes, a couple weeks ago. (laughs) So, so... We certainly hope so. And there is a little bit of irony in all of this because we were getting ready to write another outlook. It was going to be President Hillary Clinton, more years of what we had seen. I, I, you were up all Monday night writing that, weren't you? We, we, we did. We and were, then we threw yeah. it away. <laughs> and, um, and it was going to be slow growth, you know, benign inflation, not a lot of stimulus, limitations of monetary policy. And the irony now is the base case is more optimistic, but the tail risks start to get a little bit fatter because you start to see some moves towards inflation, some moves in higher rates. That doesn't mean that the cycle ends you know, in 2017 or 2018. It just means that some of the risks are rising. We're going to try to get a look at that report, that uh, ditched draft here in, in a little bit here. But Ira, <laughs> let me ask you about the expectation here. So the, the presidential election didn't go in the way that many people predicted it would. How about the reaction we've seen since then? If, if you allowed yourself to think of a Trump presidency two, three months ago, would you have expected the reaction in the markets to be what we're seeing today? Well, maybe a little bit more dramatic in the bond market than we would have um, thought generally. But it, it, but it makes it makes sense given that the missing piece from growth and uh, has been the idea of fiscal stimulus. So the idea that we're going to get fiscal stimulus is raising inflation expectations. And when you look at what has caused the bond market to move higher, it's a little bit of risk premia from the Trump presidency and, and, and term premia. But most of it has actually come from inflation expectations. So we started... Before President Trump was, uh, or President-elect Trump um, was elected, was for ten year for for inflation to average over the next ten years one point five percent. Today it's at two percent. So that well, b- explains most of the move in Treasury. Let's continue. Bills. Ira Jersey with us and uh, Brian Levitt as well from Oppenheimer Funds, and we joined them with their mint avocado toast here <laughs> at Oppenheimer Fund Studios. Ira, um, help me here with Europe with the international dynamic, and I believe it's negative rates. Did the election of Mr. Trump take away our worries about the distortions of negative interest rates? Well, not in the near term. I mean, Mario Draghi and the ECB are likely to keep interest rates low. In fact, we're expecting um, next week for the ECB to actually to extend its bond buying program by nine months. 
Um, consensus perhaps is around six. There is a risk that they try something a little bit different as well. But, th- but that just shows you that globally there's still a very low interest rate environment regardless of what the U.S. does. And not only in, in Europe, but you will have other countries, high-yielding countries like Brazil, Indonesia, India, and countries like that that we particularly like where interest rates are likely to come down over the next 12 to 18 months. And, and so there are good opportunities. And when you can get you know mid-single digits like 7% yields in India and 10% plus yields in, in Brazil if you're willing to accept some volatility, there are still places globally mm-hmm. that you can get income. But you don't want to be everywhere. So it's not saying, oh, buy emerging markets because they have higher yields, because South Korea now does not have a higher yield in the U.S. So you, you have to be very selective when you do that. Brian Levitt, looking back at the election, all that it's changed, did it change the role of the Federal Reserve in this economy right now? We see what's happened as a result of what happened on November the 8th. Uh, is the Federal Reserve getting the backseat that perhaps it's wanted here for, for a little while? I think that's true. I think the focus has shifted appropriately from the FOMC to the Trump administration. And while the FOMC was the biggest game in town last year, you know, with apologies to Janet Yellen, that now changes. So as we look forth, you know, we, we again, we expect an interest rate hike in, in December. Um, but as we look forward, what the markets really need to digest is just how possible or how um, effective will stimulus mm-hmm. be. And, you know, I think some of the things that the market has a difficult time understanding is that, for one, gridlock never really goes away. So, um, you know, even when, uh, even when Bush won re-election in 04 on this idea that they were going to privatize Social Security and he had both houses of Congress, they were unable to do that. We also know tax reform can be very ugly, right? Ronald Reagan won 49 of 50 states in 84, and it took two years to get tax reform. So, the markets, um, rightfully so, are pricing in some inflation expectations. This idea that we can make America great again, um, I think it was already great, but we can make it greater um, and that we could do better than what we're doing. But at some point, the markets probably have to bring back their expectations a little bit on all of that. I think when looking at the bond market, it's important to note that, uh, you know, and I mentioned this in the last segment as well, we're basically back to where we were in 2014. Mm-hmm. So it's not really that long ago that we that yields were at these kind of levels, that we had 2.5% 10-year yields, that inflation expectations were about 2%. And, uh, you know, so it's not uh, – we're not saying that, look, the world's going to be like gangbusters, but it's just going – that a lot of the tail risks – for growth, at least, have perhaps diminished a little bit in the U.S. As you're looking for clues here as to what policy is going to be when it comes to infrastructure spending or taxes when it comes to the Federal Reserve, uh, something that stood out to me when Steven Mnuchin was on uh, television for his first interview was he had praise for Janet Yellen. Uh, he said that he thought she's done a good job, and, and I wonder how that changes your uh, calculus, your sense of where this administration, this incoming administration, might be headed when it comes to the Federal Reserve. Well, that's a, that's a good question, and we don't know. I mean, we have debates all the time, and, and you know, Brian and I have talked about it. I've talked about it with the uh, our international debt team and our, our domestic debt teams here. And, uh, you know, we don't know if, if the pers- people that uh, Mr. Trump will appoint are going to be hawkish or dovish. Like, we're, we're not really sure where he wants to be in terms of, of, uh, of who he's going to appoint. Will he appoint someone who's an economist or, or not? I mean, uh, you know, will he appoint someone who's you know, been on Wall Street or not? We don't know. Um, and I think that that's, that's, that can't be his first priority because his first priority is to appoint the thousands of people he has to <laughs> into his administration. Still to do, yeah. And then, you know, and then he'll probably start thinking about the Fed once he has his economic policy uh, team in place and, and folks at the um, at the. Uh, OMB, they'll, they'll start talking about who's going to be the next Fed governor. The reality of it, though, um, you know, if we, if we were to move forth with a different 
makeup of the FOMC and a and makeup that is more dovish than what we've seen over the last number of years, which would be hard not to do, <laughs> right? Um, you'd have to watch the currency, and you'd have to watch. I mean, there's only so ha- you're only so hawkish you could be. You watch the currency, watch the shape of the yield curve, because the world hasn't changed simply because we elected a new president. It's still a slow growth benign inflation world. Right. We saw earnings come down from 2.8% year over year to 2.5% mm-hmm. year over year. Labor force participation rates still low. All of that hasn't changed. Aging populations in parts of the world, slow productivity growth, all of that hasn't changed. So even if you appoint someone more hawkish than Janet Yellen, the odds are it's going to be very okay. difficult to be significantly Ira, more hawkish. You are a charter member of the Bond Vigilante Club. <laughs> are the Bond Vigilantes in control here? I I don't think quite yet. Um, Agreed. You, you know, so you know, bond. I think the bond vigilantes will come out when you say, "Hey, we're going to either issue way too much debt, or we have policies that are Do you have distinctly a yield inflationary." That's a tip point on that quickly. I think it has three? to be. I think it probably has to be even over three. Um, probably closer to okay. closer to four percent. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ira Jersey, Brian Levitt, with us from their Oppenheimer Fund Studios. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.